0: Don't be afraid to call a stroke alert. If you're in doubt, call it anyway. I would rather treat a thousand patients that you thought was a stroke alert and not have a stroke than you be afraid to call the one that was and they're stuck with a deficit for the rest of their life.
1: Hey there. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. Welcome back to the Rapid Response Sponsoring Podcast. I am super excited today to have an amazing guest with me. We're talking about how to rock your next stroke alert. And no one better to talk about that than my friend, Dr. Eric Wilson, (laughs) (laughs) neuro nurse practitioner extraordinaire. Welcome to the podcast, Eric.
0: Thank you. Appreciate it, Sarah.
1: So glad to have you. So we're going to talk about all things stroke alert when to call a stroke alert, what to expect at your stroke alert, what is the nurse's role, what's the nurse practitioner's role, what kind of tasking do we need, what are the treatment, options? all the things. Before we dive into that though, can you just introduce yourself, Eric, what's your nursing background, how did you get into nursing, and why neuro nurse practitioner?
0: Ah, good story. Well, I started out a long, long time ago, back in the early 90s as an EMT and paramedic, worked my way through uh, EMS all the way to the top and kind of decided I wanted to become a nurse and. I did a bridge program from paramedic to nursing and then worked as a uh, charge nurse for quite a few years uh, before getting my bachelor's and then eventually my master's and my doctoral degree in nursing.
1: Awesome. So paramedic, ER nurse, nurse practitioner, and then specifically neuro nurse practitioner. Yes. That's awesome. So let's say we need to call a stroke alert. If you were to give like a three minute nuts and bolts description to say a new nurse, what would you tell
0: them as to like how you know it's time to call a stroke alert? The nuts and bolts with that would be a patient that has a what we call a unilateral finding, a focalization of neurological deficit, one side of the body or their other other side of the body, not normally both hands or both legs. Uh, if they have expressive aphasia, where they can't speak, or they're not following commands because they can't understand it. Sometimes you'll get visual field cuts. You'll have gaze deviations, but the nuts and bolts are when you have paralysis on a patient. That's when you want to immediately call a stroke alert and get get the team going.
1: Gotcha. So unilateral something, speech issues, or like they can't get the words out at all. Correct. But what about like they're confused or that is slow to respond.
0: That is something we see a lot with the altermentation. Everyone wants to call it a stroke alert. However, that's not a focal neurological finding in the patient. It is a neurological problem, but not a stroke-like symptom.
1: Gotcha. All right. So when in doubt, call the stroke alert.
0: Absolutely. Every time.
1: But so let's say we call the stroke alert. You're on your way. What can the nurse be doing or like preparing for? What are the questions you're going to ask whenever you show up?
0: When I show up, I'm going to ask them what the focalization is. What deficit does this patient present with? I want to know what their blood glucose level is immediately. I want to know what their blood pressure is immediately. And I want to know the last known normal, not...
1: Mm. Not when did you find them? <laughs> not when did we find
0: them, we walked in. When's the last time you saw them perfectly normal without these deficits?
1: And that leads to why it's so important that we do an initial baseline assessment when we meet the patient in the morning. Absolutely. I can't tell how many I go to and I say, when's the last and they were normal? And the nurse looks at me like, oh shoot, when I changed off shift, the patient was sleeping and I didn't wake them up right. and I just met them just now and I had no idea when the last time they were seen normal. So then we're like trying to do investigative work and ask everyone who's seen this patient, has anyone taken their blood sugar? Has anyone taken vital signs? How are they like trying to figure out when the actual last normal was because there wasn't a good baseline assessment right. for that nurse's shift.
0: And because the medication that we use either place or place is specifically geared for a certain amount of hours because as time goes by, the risk of bleeds increases. We want to know the last known normal, and we won't guess. They may be a candidate for a thrombectomy, mm-hmm. but the medication's just too dangerous to give.
1: Gotcha, and we will talk about thrombectomy more since uh, we're, we're all about that thrombectomy. So let's talk about that darn NIH stroke scale. You know, both you and I have had to do that training every year for the last however many years we've been nurses (laughs) it's very cumbersome it's a very detailed neuroassessment it definitely brings some value but man it's so long and if we're trying to like get this patient to ct and get them intervention we're trying to save brain cells here we are spending all this time for this long assessment all the while brain cells are dying so my question for you is in your years being a neuro nurse practitioner have you picked up any like tips or tricks or hacks or ways to like combine assessments together to make it go faster? Like any tips you would give for someone who's learned the NIH but they're like, this is so long. Like, how can you speed it up? How can you be so- more efficient?
0: So what we normally find is when a stroke alert comes in, or even if a stroke alert is on the floor, there's so many different people trying to do something, to do their part for the patient, whether they're trying to get a blood pressure, they're trying to get them on the monitor, they're trying to get IV access for blood, which we don't need blood for a non-contrast CT. That's my, my preach for the day. But when this is going on, we try to also do the neurological examination. So we want to see if there's any arm drift, any leg drift. So usually you want to start at the top and work your way down. However, if someone's working on an arm, you can't, you just bypass the arms, you go to the legs and you get whatever limbs are available at any time. So that way there everybody's getting their work done, but you're also getting a full assessment.
1: Gotcha. So being flexible to what's happening Absolutely. in addition to what you're trying to do with the assessment.
0: We will move to CT with that to find out if they're a bleed or whether they are a ischemic event going on. And we're able to give the medication immediately after that.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So I have seen you guys do an scales and it's really fast. I know you give the residents two minutes. Do you think you can do it in ninety seconds? Guaranteed. <laughs> okay. So, I think the best way to teach it is just to do it. Okay. All right. So this is gonna be awkward. Can I be the patient and you do the NIH and I time you? Absolutely. Are you up, you're up for the challenge? I'm up for the challenge. <laughs> okay. All right. Let me get my let me get my timer here. Hold on. All right,
0: And I will say that most of the patients that we do are usually laying in the supine position.
1: Well, too bad. We I'm going to be this. in a purple chair.
0: We can absolutely <laughs> do this in the sitting position. It's just modified a little bit.
1: Got it. Got it. All right. I'm all for modified. Let me get my timer here. <laughs> all right. Ready? Set. Go.
0: Okay. I want you to look at me. Follow my finger. I want okay. you to close your eyes really tight. Open your eyes. Open your mouth. Say ah.
1: Ah. Get your tongue out. Ah. Left.
0: To the right? Okay. Does this feel the same on both sides? Yes. Does this feel the same on both sides? Yes. I want you to hold your arms out for me in front of you. I want you to close your eyes. Count to ten. One, One. two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Touch your nose with that finger. Keep your eyes closed. Touch your nose with that finger. Touch, keep your eyes closed. Open your eyes. Squeeze my hands. All right. Touch your nose. Touch my finger with your right hand. <laughs> okay. Go back and forth. Okay. okay. Very good. Try it with the left hand.
1: This is harder than I think. There
0: you go. Very good. Okay, I want you to lift your knee up off the ground, straight up, not your leg, your knee. Oh, like that. Hold it up. Don't okay. push down. Hold it up. Okay, same one this. Okay. Once you kick your leg out.
1: Okay. Kick your leg out. Okay.
0: All right, foot up.
1: Okay.
0: Push down. Yes, pedal. Got it. Yeah. Same thing.
1: Up. Okay. Down. Yep. Does this feel the same? Yes. We're done. What? That was fifty-eight seconds. Okay.
0: Impressive. <laughs> I would. I would also, if you weren't talking, ask you to repeat after me. No ifs, ands, or buts.
1: No ifs, ands, or buts.
0: Sounds clear. <laughs> thank okay. Thank you. Thank you.
1: <laughs> All right, so let's go through each of the, the pieces of the NIH stroke scale because you knocked them all out by like kind of combining some things together. Mm-hmm. So going down the line, level of consciousness, you're talking to me. You're oriented, responding. You're a zero. As far as like questions to see if I'm dysarthric, I'm responding to you, I'm talking. You can assess that very mm-hmm. easily. Um, you had me blink my eyes and squeeze your hands. Following command. Yep. As far as my extraocular movements, you have me following your finger. Mm-hmm. Visual feel, same thing. I'm able to actually like follow the finger. So clearly I don't have uh, vision issues there. Facial palsy, you had me do what?
0: Mm-hmm. Just looking at your face, I can tell that you have no facial palsy.
1: Okay, Very good. For my left and right arms, you assess those simultaneously.
0: There was no drift and there was no deficit uh, okay. of sensory.
1: For my left and right leg, we did not do them simultaneously because that would be quite a Pilates workout for anybody. <laughs> so we do those separately. All right, for limb ataxia.
0: Now, upper extremities, we do finger to nose, which you did back and forth. Yeah. So you had no ataxia with your upper extremities. Laying on the on the bed, you would do heel to shin. Right. It would be very difficult in the sitting position. Sitting position,
1: got it. Sensation, you asked me, can you feel this? Can you feel this? You feel this eagle on both sides, okay? Um, for language aphasia, I was answering other questions appropriately. And,
0: and repeated no ifs, ands, or buts.
1: Yes. To start you you'd already been talking to me. Do you could assess that for extinction or inattention? Obviously, I'm responding to this whole right. assessment, so I don't have any inattention on one side or the other. Done. Done. Very impressive. You
0: didn't think it was going to happen, did you?
1: I, well, I thought it was going to cut it pretty close, but no, you you knocked it out. Okay. So, we get this patient the CT, while in CT... Like, what can I expect from there? What are we doing CAT scan? What are we ruling out? Like there's a lot that happens while we're down there getting that CT. So
0: the biggest misconception we see, especially with new nurses going there, they're expecting to see this ischemic stroke that's going on in the brain. And reality, what we're looking for is an absolutely perfect brain that shows nothing. We don't want to see areas of what we call hypodense tissue that are darker, that looks like the stroke has already happened. It takes hours for that to show up on a non-contrast CT. So if somebody says, I was normal three hours ago and I look at the imaging and it looks like a stroke that's been there for nine to 12 hours, we know that something isn't consistent. The The other thing that we look for is I call uh, white stuff in the gray stuff, (laughs) which means (laughs) it's hyperdense, it's blood that shows up. Whenever we see blood, they are absolutely uh, not indicated to receive the medication.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so that's what we're looking for on CAT scan. Mm -hmm. As far as like inclusion-exclusion criteria, Aside from outside of the window and aside from it's a hemorrhagic stroke, what are the other exclusion criteria to get a thrombolytic?
0: So exclusion criteria, there's a ton of them that we would ask as, as NPs and physicians uh, seeing this patient. Things such as, do you have a history of anemia is a big one because if you're blood levels are low, or if your platelets are low below 100, it's very dangerous to get that medication. Uh, have they had a recent GI bleed, upper or lower? Have they had recent surgery within the last 14 days? Have they had a stroke within the last 90 days? Have they ever had a neoplasm or cancer in their brain? Or are they currently uh, experiencing systemic cancer? So there's a lot of uh, things that we would ask just to make sure that this patient isn't a severe risk for bleeding. People always think too, if they're on a uh, oral anticoagulation medication, uh, Zeralto Eliquis, or Coumadin, they're completely excluded from getting the medication. However, they're not. Uh, With Xeralta and Eliquis, if they've had the medication within 24 hours, yes. If they haven't had a dose within 24 hours, we can give it to them. With Coumadin, if they're subtherapeutic, less than 1.7, we can still give it to them. However, they are blocked after three hours, even if they're subtherapeutic. Gotcha. Gotcha.
1: The medications like Plavix per se or aspirin; those are not exclusions. Yeah,
0: criteria, we yeah. hear all the time when we ask, "Are they on thinners?" Yes, they're on thinners. They're on Plavix and aspirin, which another misconception. Those are antiplatelet medications, and so absolutely, we can we can take care of them with that.
1: Okay, so if they're out of the window, they can't get the thrombolytic. If they had a recent surgery, recent trauma, GI bleeding, low platelets, uh, recently taking some medication, that's going to be contraindicated. Mm-hmm. Yes, so all those are exclusion criteria. Are there any criteria that you're like, ah, if they have that, we have to really kind of weigh it out, like a relative contraindication. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a quick break to talk about something that I think is really important. And that is getting certified in your nursing specialty. Not because having the extra letters behind your name make you a better nurse, but because taking the time to deep dive into all that you need to know for your specialty putting in the study hours and dedicating yourself to mastering what your patients need you to know how to manage them best, that the prep for the exam is what will make you a better nurse. So whatever specialty you are currently working in, go study for that certification exam. And if you're a critical care nurse, I have something that will help you pass your CCRN. My friend, Nick McGowan has an excellent online, self-paced CCRN prep course called Critical Care Academy. It is so thorough and he has broken down everything you need to know into little bite-sized digestible content that he calls micro learning. Let me tell you, the CCRN is the hardest test I've taken in my entire life. You don't want to go it alone. You wanna take this course to ensure that you know your stuff before sitting for the exam. If you'd like to check out his course, you can find it at CCRNacademy.com. And great news, just for being a rapid response RN podcast listener, you get 10% off the cost of the course by using the coupon code RAPID10 at checkout. So if you've ever considered getting your CCRN, do it. And let Critical Care Academy help make sure that you will pass. I'll put the link and coupon code in the show notes.
0: Right. Yeah, there's a list of relative contraindications too, but it's case by case. And we really lean toward how bad is the deficit, what's their life going to be like, and how important is this relative contraindication. When there are absolute contraindications, it's a no-go. Right.
1: But some of them, like, if they're pregnant, then we kind of have to weigh out risks Absolutely. and benefits. Or if they had, I don't know, we'll say a recent surgery, but it's just right outside the window. Or there's so many the things you're like, oh, we really have to weigh it out with the patient and the whole mm-hmm. team to make the best. Last
0: decision. stroke 89 days ago. Oh, uh, it's It's right. really, really... Sometimes it's heart-wrenching to watch these things when we can't give it to them and we really want to. Yeah. But at the end of the day, if you give this patient a medication where it's absolutely contraindicated and they bleed, right, that's worse. Right,
1: I agree. Okay, so we talked about contraindications, inclusion criteria, all right. What's the difference between a non-contrast CT and a contrast CT, or like a, an angiogram? Obviously, besides the title, like what are you looking for in each one?
0: Okay, so you have the non-contrast CT, which is what we look for absolutely nothing. We don't right. want to it's see bleeding. We, we don't want to see big strokes in the area. Uh, then we do the CTA head and neck. So it's the CT angiogram where we use IVP dye to go up into the brain, and we're looking at all the mm-hmm. arteries and the veins of of the brain to see if there's any areas where it abruptly stops. So that would be your occlusion.
1: And from what I've seen, that's kind of when you guys are like, right, this patient is is or is not a candidate for thrombectomy. Correct. So can you talk a little bit about what patients are great candidates for thrombectomy and what patients are unfortunately not a good candidate for thrombectomy?
0: So, yeah, we have patients that come in the back door, usually in the back hall, we can tell just by their presentation, whether they would likely be a, a candidate for thrombectomy and we let the Interventional neurologists know right away what we have just so they're alert and watching for the imaging. Patients that are characteristically included for thrombectomy have to have a presentation that's less than 24 hours old. It is at the discretion of the interventional neurologist whether they want to go farther than that. Sometimes you get patients that it's kind of an ambiguous 24 hours, maybe a little bit longer, but we can tell with imaging uh, how long it's been, and in, in, we'll go into that in a second but when we do the imaging, we have uh, three areas of vasculature that we look at. We look at the anterior circulation, middle circulation, and the posterior circulation. The biggest vessel that we deal with is the middle cerebral artery. It covers about two-thirds of the brain. When we talk about occlusions of these vessels, the smaller the number, the larger the vessel. So if you have an M1 occlusion, that's a bigger vessel than an M2 versus an M3. Right now, most interventional radiologists go after an M1, maybe a distal M1 to M2. Thankfully, I work with a group that will go M2 and distal M2. It's a lot more dangerous. The risk for bleeding is significantly higher. Thankfully, they have many years of experience, so they have very good outcomes. Same thing goes with interior circulation and A1, A2, A3, and the posterior circulation goes with the P's. Uh, posterior circulation is a lot more dangerous because you're dealing with vertebral arteries and the basilar artery, and if you happen to occlude that, it's bad news and people go to sleep forever.
1: Yeah, yeah, So you're looking to see, is this a large vessel occlusion? Right. Because if it's a large vessel occlusion, there's something we can actually chase down and pull right. out. But if it's a small vessel occlusion, we can't actually physically get anything after we can't get
0: to it. Right. That's where tenecteplase comes in. It's better for the smaller vessels where a mechanical thrombectomy is better for the very large M1 occlusions. So it's, it's a good balance. And we never withhold tenecteplase because we don't know what the occlusion is mm-hmm. until after we've given the medication. And then we do the CT angiogram and find out where the occlusion is.
1: So having given Thrombolytic is never a contraindication for then going on to do a thrombectomy.
0: Never correct.
1: Okay, I've had that question asked a lot when I, mean, I have students. Who are like, isn't giving a they call them a clot buster? Isn't giving a clot buster like a contraindication for poking the groin and the femoral artery? And like, you think, <laughs> but it actually is better for the patient right. to have had that uh, tenecteplase prior to having the procedure. So I was wondering, do you have your favorite story, like your favorite amazing turnaround case of a patient who had? either you know a smaller vessel
0: occlusion or an LVO. Hmm. Uh, there was one patient that we had a while ago. She was so amazing. And her sister happened to be watching her out gardening and she collapsed a long way away from our hospital. Mm-hmm. And usually EMS takes a long time to get to your house out there. And everything was aligned that day. Her, her sister watched her collapse, immediately dialed 911. The EMS was at her house within seven minutes. Wow. And she made it from to our ER in 38 minutes so from the time she collapsed to the time she was in the back hall it was 45 minutes okay. she had an NIH that was i believe 19. she had gaze deviation she wasn't able um, to talk however she was able to nod yes and no she okay. was alert and oriented however was not able to speak oh. uh, she was densely plegic on her left side and We went through all the exclusions with yeses and nos, and she was a candidate for the TPA at the time that we were using, and we gave it to her. Immediately after giving her the TPA, we ran her over to the biplane because she had a large M1 occlusion, and we pulled the clot out. And what was so amazing about that is she had a complete resolution on the table. She went from a 19 to a zero. That is so
1: cool. It gives me chills. I have to think about how awesome that is we get to
0: do. So we got her upstairs, and I went back downstairs, and I got one of our nurses who— I always look at the ER nurses. They see these patients go in ICU and they never see them again. And she was the one that was there to give the the medication. And I said, you need to come with me. And I went upstairs and I brought her in that room and she just stared. She couldn't speak. She watched this patient that was completely hemiplegic, expressively aphasic, gaze deviation, horrible, horrible, turn around and say, thank you so much for saving my life.
1: That's the best.
0: And she didn't say anything. She just backed out of the room and we got in the elevator and she was saying, oh, my God, oh, my God. And there was just tears coming down her face.
1: Yeah.
0: And it was amazing. I said, you guys need to know the difference that you make in these patients' lives. You never see it.
1: Yeah. That really is so rewarding. I mean, it's it's the coolest thing to be a part of that story for the patient mm-hmm. and to know that, like, my hustle made a difference in this patient's outcome. Yeah. Because we booked at the CT, because we quickly did the NIH, because we quickly drew the medication, and, and all the things aligned, like you said, mm-hmm. this patient needs to go home to her family yep. and get back to gardening versus – in a nursing home forever.
0: Forever, and a bad outcome. And what's really cool about that is, you know, the goal for giving an anti-thrombotic medication is 60 minutes. And we really, really push to get, you know, as fast as we can. And this particular patient was our first patient that we got in seven minutes. (laughs)
1: That's such a good, that's such a good time. So door to needle, seven Seven
0: minutes. minutes.
1: We were booking it for that lady. And what a great outcome. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, I think people are like, oh, we have 60 minutes to give it. But the longer we wait, the more brain cells are dying.
0: I tell them, oh, 1.9 million brain cells per minute. So let's roll. Yeah, yeah. People I can't agree. afford to lose that.
1: I agree. Man, that's, that is a really awesome story. Thank you for sharing that, Erin.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so let's say we get into the scanner and we do the non-contrast CT. And we see that, what did you call it? Why in the gray
0: stuff? I don't call it that, but when...
1: <laughs> right, right. Um, so let's say we see that. Yeah, then what?
0: Then blood pressure becomes a very important issue. Usually with giving tenecteplase, we want to be below 185 or 110 to give it. But with a bleed, then blood pressure becomes a significant issue. We want to get the blood pressure down below 140 over 90. Okay. We want to basically treat this person as a critically ill patient, which is what they are. We want to uh, get neurosurgery on board. We want to do seizure precautions, everything, because we never know what's gonna happen with this patient, but they're definitely not a antithrombotic candidate <laughs> yeah, at that point yeah, in time.
1: very good. All right, so let me just summarize. And then I just have one more question for you. So you see your patient, you see unilateral something, facial drooping, weakness on one side, focal deficit, as mm-hmm. we call it. So we call a stroke alert. All right, the team is on their way. As the team is coming, I'm making sure I have a blood glucose, making sure I'm having blood pressure, mm-hmm. making sure I know the history enough that I can say like what meds they're on, what they're here in the hospital for, have they had recent surgery, are they a GI bleed, all that stuff. I'm making sure I have a clear, last known normal, not what time I found them, last time they were seen at their baseline. Okay, so the team comes, we load up, we go to CAT scan. In CAT scan, we're going to do a non-contrast CT. We're going to determine, does this patient meet criteria to receive a thrombolytic? And if they meet criteria we will go through and go ahead and give that medication just with a non-contrast CT. Correct. We're not waiting for the contrast CT. People get that good be the one. Mm-hmm. All right. So we get the thrombolytic, and then we're going to go back in the scanner and do a CT angiogram to see, does this patient seem like a good candidate for a thrombectomy? Now, not every hospital is a comprehensive stroke center. Not every hospital has the ability to do thrombectomies. So I would say if they are lost vessel occlusion, they need to be shipped out to somewhere that can do it. But if you are working at a comprehensive stroke center, Thrombectomy is such an awesome procedure. As you described, this woman who went from, you know, totally plegic on one side, aphasic, and then she's talking to you and thanking mm-hmm. you within minutes. Like, that is what we're shooting for, right? That outcome right there. Mm-hmm. So if there's a large muscle occlusion. The patient's going to go to thrombectomy. Is there anything that the nurse needs to do to prepare the patient for thrombectomy? Are any, like, questions that are going to be asked or preparations as far as, like, getting the patient down there?
0: The only thing I'll need the nurse to do is basically get two IVs on the patient if they uh, can get a Foley in the patient and get them in a gown. Okay. Those are the most important things for the biplane team to have when they get the patient. We'll take care of all the consents and making sure the physicians are aware, anesthesia is aware, and everything else we do getting ICU beds. But the nurse basically focus on that patient care, getting those IVs and and the Foley.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Is there any other pearls of wisdom or clinical practice nuggets that you wanna share with the nurses that are listening, things that you've learned over the years, mistakes you've seen nurses make, things you've seen nurses do that are awesome, any final things that you wanna leave us with?
0: Uh, the biggest thing I'll tell anybody is, don't be afraid to call a stroke alert. Mm-hmm. If you're in doubt, call it anyway. I would rather treat a thousand patients that you thought was a stroke alert and not have a stroke, than you be afraid to call the one that was, and they're stuck with a deficit for the rest of their life.
1: Thank you. I, I agree 100%. All right, Eric. Well, this is a great podcast. I can't wait to edit it and get it all <laughs> <laughs> sent out to the to everyone to listen to. Thank you so much for coming and recording this podcast with me. It's going to be really helpful. It's awesome. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you liked this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as The Rapid Response RN.